Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome back, everyone, to One Step Beyond, a show all about positively engaging with the world outside our door in all the multiple facets that that phrase encompasses. On this episode, we are having a return visit from Shafiq Medji, who you may have heard only, uh, only in fact, two episodes ago when I talked to him about uh, travel writing. Uh, Shafiq is a journalist who made the move over from sports journalism, mainly football, soccer, over to travel writing and has made a fantastic career out of it. And not only is he a very busy, active writer, writing for everything from BBC Travel, Wanderlust, Atlas Obscura, the National Geographic Traveller, gosh, BA High Life, all those kinds of things. He's also written an excellent book about Bolivia, a country that doesn't get too much... um, too much love or respect or attention, really, which is amazing when you consider its history and its importance to global culture. His book is called Crossed Off the Map, Travels in Bolivia. We're going to get to discussing that. But last time around, we talked so much about travel writing, what's engaged in it, and certain general concepts of travel that uh, we didn't get into the nitty gritty of certain countries and certain um, places that you can travel close to home as well as far from home. And uh, the, the, another great thing about Shafiq is that he writes well, pretty much all his travel journalism now has the environment in the foreground. Uh, so hence the subject header for this episode, travel for good. And that's not about whether you can travel forever. I've kind of did cover that with a family I met on my own year long travels who uh, ended up traveling for two and a half years with kids in tow. And indeed, the other episode, Travel in the Age of COVID, when my guest is somebody who is still on the road right now, basically never really goes home and she's to just make it work as a traveler well into his 50s. You can travel for good, but more to the point, can travel be for the good of the planet? That's what we're going to get into on this episode. First up, I have uh, news slash a request slash an invitation. I have long been feeling the need to centralize uh, my various creative endeavors, outputs, whatever you want to call them. I have two podcasts. Uh, The other one is much more concerned with the music that has been a mainstay of my life, but travel, the outdoors, running, the different things that have been forming subject matters for One Step Beyond are also very much a part of my life. I often spend too much of my own valuable time writing uh, like, you know, little mini mini stories that go out on social media for Facebook, etc., where, uh, you know, they get read, but they're, they're really sitting there as content for uh, the, the, the Mark Zuckerbergs of this world. So I am starting to centralize all these activities on a sub stack. 
My invitation and request to you is that you visit, and there will be a direct link in the show notes, tonyfletcher.substack.com, and just enter your email address if you would, and uh, what you'll get in return is every week once I get it properly up and running, which should be within the week of this episode going out, an article from me, and you'll get news of when podcasts are out. You'll have news of how to maybe access some extras for those podcasts. Uh, You'll also get articles from me that do relate to my other activities. If at any time you don't like it, I mean, I guess you can unsubscribe. There's absolutely no charge for this basic service. So simple request. I'd love you to go do that. It would be really, really cool. And that way I might get to know you better, which will also be really cool. Uh, The interview runs a little long as they tend to these days. I guess we don't have a limitation. I have spent time editing for time. Any which way, I would like to invite you to strap on your day pack or possibly your full traveling backpack, depending on our destination. Make sure that uh, you've got uh, some form of compass in hand, that you know which direction you're headed in. Check your car footprint at the door and uh, let's uh, get on board and go one step beyond welcome back to one step beyond Shafiq. how are you doing today you still in south london uh yeah uh, um, i'm still in south london a very beautiful sunny uh south london so uh yeah all, all's good over here and uh it, you know so it's a pleasure to be back on the podcast and uh chatting to you tony yeah fa- thanks for doing that because first time around we only really got to address the subject of travel writing which was of great in is of great interest to me i wanted to talk much more on this episode about actual travel and i thought in terms of being able to connect together so many different aspects of travel uh, itself that we wanted to talk about this time we could do some under the uh, umbrella of travel for good and maybe with a question mark on it I want to ask this central question that I think really um, almost existential question that a lot of us have to address. Is travel good for the planet? Um, I, I would I would love to give you a an easy, simple, definitive answer to to that question. But as I'm sure you won't be too surprised to hear, um, I have a more nuanced response. Um, I think... <laughs> You know, the, the the honest the honest answer is that it can be both positive, and it can be negative, and sometimes both in different spheres at the same time. I think it's important for um, us as professionals, and I'm talking about um, travel writers, but also people in the travel industry more generally, is that we have to be aware about how big this industry is. It's one of the biggest industries in the world. Um, it has a huge carbon footprint, um, but it does also have um, positive impacts um, and some of those I touch in my book in that they you know you provide uh, much needed income to um, local communities indigenous communities as, um, particularly particularly in South America there's the more general um, uh, response that always comes up with this in that, that travel helps to broaden the mind and give you deeper understandings of uh, different cultures and different peoples and um, you know hopefully forge understandings I don't think it's always as easy as that but um but but I but I do believe travel can be a positive effect and also just fundamentally we ha- you have to look at the how important it is to um, economies around the world particularly um uh, developing economies and particularly economies in the global south 
you know, for good or bad, lots of places are absolutely reliant on tourism. So what I try and do in my work is try and um, advise and steer and recommend um, uh, readers and followers to um, when they're going on holiday, when they're traveling to to spend their money um, and it's and often a huge amount of money um, in in ways that benefit the local communities that uh, minimize the negative environmental impact, in some cases have a positive um, environmental impact. And here I'm thinking of um, uh, conservation projects, national parks, which uh, rely on tourism income that give people an economic incentive not to deforest, uh, not to poach and so on. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my nuanced answer to that. I mean, we could talk about this question um all, all, all day yeah i think you hear a, a a lot of it there and i think the question you're saying we could talk about it all day i think it will loom over everything else we're going to talk about you you bandied about a few different words there and i'm not sure that for for everybody they're interchangeable so i want to ask you about this do you personally see a difference between travel and tourism and i mean you also mentioned you know, when you go on holiday which might be different from when somebody takes time off to travel uh, there can be a little bit of a sense of, you know, I'm on holiday on one side and on another side, people are like, hey, I'm not a tourist, I'm a traveler. How do you sit with with all of this? I mean, yeah, just, just to go into that that tangent, I mean, I've definitely fallen into this trap myself, so I, I hold my hands up. But I think there's a lot of snobbishness around the difference or the perceived difference between tourism and travel. In the sense that I was using it, I wasn't trying to use either in a pejorative sense. I was more thinking tourism in the sense of going on a holiday, travel as, uh, you know, taking five or six months out to backpack around South America or so on. But um, no, you, you'll get an awful lot of um, people who uh, have um, snobbish attitudes to them and, and kind of see, see it as a distinction. But um, yeah, I, 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 I think... <laughs> Generally, it's it, 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 it's an unhelpful um, kind of distinction between the two. Even if you consider yourself a traveller, you're having you know you're having a huge impact. Tourists are having a huge impact as well. So um, so yeah. So I, I that's you, the you, distinction I use. Yeah, you know, one of the uh, we could break this down even further. And and I have not looked up the def, def, dictionary definition of travel. But you have written a couple of pieces recently, and they're truly fascinating. And, and, and I want to preface by saying not just for, for British listeners, because they were going to be equivalents all over the world. But you wrote about two environmental hotspots in the UK, two separate um, articles. I'd like you to go into those a little bit, because it seems to me that it, it raises an often unaddressed uh, issue that travel can be really close to home. Interesting travel. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons that I like travel writing as a genre, as a writer, is that it's so broad and mm. all encompassing and you can shoot off and cover lots of different things that um, may not classically feel, fit, the, fit the dictionary definition of what travel is. And I think also it, it's something that's kind of emerged through the lockdowns of the, of the, of the pandemic when, you know, our, our, our worlds, all of our worlds um, shrunk dramatically. Um, you know, you weren't able to travel for for long for long periods, but I think you can kind of you can have travel like experiences without having to travel to the other side of the world. That 
it, to some extent, it's a uh, you know it's a frame of a frame of mind, and that you can look at places, maybe surroundings that you're familiar with, maybe places that are close at hand, through um, through fresh eyes, um, and that's certainly something that I've tried to do increasingly over the last few few years. And not least because it has a positive knock-on effect to go back to our previous discussion in that I'm traveling there by public transport. I'm not flying. I'm going by train or, um, or, or by bus um, um, in, in, in some context. Um, but it's also to say that even if you live in the heart of the city, one of the biggest cities, you know, in, in, in the world, in, in, in London, that are close at hand, Mm-hmm. Are some really remarkable places, and often these remarkable places are in uh, unlikely settings. Um, and for me, as a writer, that's 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 great to explore. Um, so yeah, and, and I say one of them just thirty miles away from where I am in South London, in Essex, uh, in a place called Canvey Island, um, which is on the Thames Gateway, um, and the tip of uh, the tip of the island, it's a place called Canvey Wick. Mm-hmm. And uh, it used to be a, um, uh, a petro- um, um, oil refinery and plant, um, and lots and lots of money was thrown into it. And uh, the uh, Thames was dredged, and lots of the dredging material was dumped on the site to help even it out and prepare it for uh, its industrial usage. And then the oil shocks of the 1970s happened, and the business became... Um, financially unviable and the site was essentially left abandoned Um, and uh, kind of remarkably it's been it's rewilded itself uh, without human hands largely Um, and amidst these you know these concrete uh, and metal remnants that slowly rusted and collapsed um, has developed one of the most biodiverse places in the UK um, particularly for invertebrates. So with invertebrates, I mean insects and mollusks and so on, of which there are um, 1,500 species nearabouts. Um, and it's actually a remarkable place to explore. Um, uh, one of the um, official environmental bodies in the UK described it as a brownfield rainforest. A what, um, sorry? As a brownfield rainforest. So a brownfield would be uh, like an like an abandoned, like a, a former industrial okay, site as I opposed was... to like a greenfield <clears throat> Uh, right right Right. Um, i was wondering about that so the it is kind of irony of ironies right that um something that was initially constructed to you know extract from the planet effectively speed up a destruction of the planet once abandoned sounds like it's taken that part of the uk back what thousands of years to to create something that might be more places if we left them alone. Is that is that my takeaway here? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it, it's it's one is a positive story that actually <laughs> landscapes and environments and ecosystems, you know, when left alone, can often regenerate themselves. Obviously, mm-hmm. sometimes you know, often they need they need some help with this. Um, but it's also that. Um, yeah, as you say, it, 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 it's an interesting juxtaposition because so on the one hand, something that's causing, you know, you know, fossil fuels, something that um, has, has driven the climate emergency. The remnants of that can be turned in, you know, pretty much a generation into um, an incredibly uh, biodiverse landscape. I mean, if you walk down there today, it's meadows, it's grasslands on the Thames estuary. Um, it feels a little bit like a lost city because you're you know you're, you're wandering right. along past the lead to nowhere 
Um, there's 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 you know there's there's an old dock and jetty that has been you know recolonized by um, by seabirds, for example. Um, so and this it, is it, and this is all public land, right? There's like footpaths. It's all it's all accessible to the general public. It is accessible to the general <clears throat> public. A, a large part of it is um, is now a nature reserve, um, and it's a site of special scientific interest here in the uk but it's very much open to the to the public um when i went down there i was walk there were dog walkers there were there were joggers and so on and the the charities that were involved in the conservation of the site are very very keen to get uh, members of the local community in canby island there but also um other visitors tourists and travelers from further afield to to visit because once you go to a place like that you realize the importance of the the ecosystem um and you know the, the the argument is if you're if you're more aware of the value of these kind of ecosystems you're going to be um keener to help protect it um and um it's it's also on a uh, wonderful um uh hiking trail on the thames path so you can follow the the, the river from the uh from its source to the sea um so you can build it into to other to other trips um, and it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting place, very close to London. Uh, not something that will be a typical tourist attraction by any means, but something that gives you a really rich and interesting experience. It's got me thinking of uh, I've been fortunate enough to go to Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, and in the heart of Kuala Lumpur, and I, I, I use the word ironic a lot, probably overuse it, right next to the Petronas Towers, which is a sign of Malaysia's um, oil wealth, is an eco-forest park. That I don't know if you've ever been there, but it is literally an eco-forest in the center of this city. And it's got like footbridges and... Um, it is it is the wild, and somehow I think the heap sort of built the city and left this little patch alone, and figured that it has some some relevance. And it, it's kind of incredible because for the you don't quite escape the sense that you're in this big city, but you realise the, the the balance, the fact that we build all this concrete and we build these towers to the sky, and we extract the oil, and yet it can live alongside utter natural beauty or just utter nature and that's maybe the takeaway from that does britain have anything like does britain have rainforests for example yeah i mean fun, funnily you answer funnily you answer uh, ask that question because yeah i mean last year one of my favorite research trips was 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 very close at hand a little bit further afield for me from london uh, from from canby wick but uh uh yes so uh the the britain britain 10,000 years ago, the West Coast, the Atlantic coast, was covered with rainforests, temperate rainforests, much as you would have in um, in parts of Canada, in parts of the US as well. Um, and now there are only fragments survive. I mean, Britain is a very nature-depleted country. I, th I believe it's the most nature-depleted in Europe. But fragments of these ancient woodlands um, still survive, often in unlikely places. And uh, last year, I, I managed to visit um, a little surviving piece. Um, it was about 310 hectares in mm -hmm. Snowdonia National Park. So Snowdonia is one in, in Wales is one of the big tourist destinations there. Absolutely beautiful landscapes. Yeah, very few people go to this tiny little um, forest within within the, within the park. 
which is next to a nuclear power plant, incidentally, okay. and it's and it's yeah. next to a town called Blind Eye Festiniog, which is very very famous for producing slate mm-hmm. um, hi- historically. So it's quite quite a um, industrialized landscape uh, uh, around it. But this fragment of uh, surviving rainforest that you step into and you immediately feel as if you're in another world. It's absolutely carpeted with mosses and lichens, uh, fungi as well. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a very damp, humid environment. It rains around 200 days a year there. So, um, so that obviously, uh, obviously helps. Um, and it, and it, it feels like a magical landscape. And appropriately enough, it, 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 is, it is mentioned in many, many ancient Welsh um, language myths and legends and so on, many of which are about the forest coming to life, to uh, come into life as an army to aid, aid humans. And I kind of thought that was quite a nice story that has maybe resonance today in that, um, you know, actually, we need to be the army fighting for the um, fighting for the trees. And well, that yeah, carry on. So yeah. Well, I was going to say is that there's a, there's an even deeper resonance to that because these temperate rainforests are huge um, carbon sinks. Of course, um, there's some suggestion that actually that they can, they're they're better carbon sinks than tropical rainforests, which we're more familiar with. And very nearby to these um, to this rainforest, which and I'm you're going to have to forgive my Welsh pronunciation here, but are called Coed Felenrik and Clenerg. But nearby is a seaside resort of Fairbourne, and Fairbourne is going to be uh, is likely to be one of the first settlements in the UK to be abandoned because of climate change, because it's it's behind a sea wall that looks very formidable, but as sea level rises um, uh, at some point over the next you know forty years or so, fifty years or so, will be um, will be deluged. So you can kind of see the both the problem and one of the solutions very very close at hand. The reason I was about to, I, I tried jumping in there was when you were talking about uh, the forests and the sinkholes, and it got me uh, as a as a segue. I thought to your expertise in in South America, and addressing maybe the issue of the Amazon, which uh, your book on Bolivia is uh, a, a fascinating book. You spent so much time there. You've tried to weave and successfully tried to weave together in cross off the map sort of uh, I, 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 I jotted this down, but it's sort of like history and culture. You've, you've got, you know, politics and colonization. You've got uh, climate and and you're trying you know, you're weaving all of this in together into a narrative as a sort of journeying narrative, which which makes for an increasingly fascinating read. I want to actually say I felt the book got stronger as it went along. And because you've written a book on it, not many people have in recent decades, because you spent so much time there, I want to ask you, um, you, you what does does traveling through Bolivia tell us about the climate? Um, One of the things that immediately strikes me about Bolivia, um, and this is not just to do with the climate crisis, but it feels like it's on the front line of so many defining issues that will shape all of our lives, wherever we are in the world, over the years to come, uh, particularly with the climate emergency. To give you one example of that, uh, when I was traveling by train down the uh, the Western Andean side of the country to the Salado Uni, which is the world's biggest salt flat, a magical place. Uh, when I was traveling down there in 2014, I passed uh, what was then the second biggest lake 
in the country. And given that the first biggest lake is Lake Titicaca, the second biggest lake is still pretty big. Um, I think it was roughly the size of Luxembourg at its biggest extent. And I, in 2014, I travelled along the shoreline on this train route, and I saw, you know, all kinds of bird life and towns that uh, and villages that relied on on fishing. And then within a year and a half of that, the lake had essentially dried up. It had turned into a, a, a dust bowl. There's very, very moving pictures of it that you can find online How? about that. How? Well, How does a lake of that size dry up that quickly? It can't. If that was purely global warming surely there would be similar stories all around the world yeah so it's it's important to it's important to note that there are lots of factors that affected the the, the disappearance of the lake which has always fluctuated in size and it's always been relatively shallow the climate emergency or let's say environmental issues more generally played an important role in that but there was a lot of um uh desertification in that area part of which is producing uh doing monocropping which is generally quinoa for export mm. um uh, around the, around the world there's a lot of industrial uh plants uh further upstream from it that would often dump waste uh waste material and sometimes poisonous materials into the into the lake that uh, that blocked it up there's also water um, that has been taken out of the lake for uh, agricultural uses, industrial uses. It's a complex issue and there's lots of, you know, there's lots of interplay between them. And, um, but it, it was something that nevertheless, just the, the, the starkness of it showed just really how quickly a landscape that is, you know, very, very familiar or that, that seems timeless, at least to the casual <laughs> passerby, can change so quickly. Um, and that, you know, lots of the, um industries and human impacts that define our lives today um are really 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 shaping things like that so that that helped to um bring the issue to light with me but there's also huge forest fires in the amazon which we'll be very familiar with um most people are aware of them through what's happened in brazil over recent years very similar things have happened in um bolivia too um, and and everything that you mentioned about the lake, what's the lake's name again? Sorry, the Pupo. Pupo. Okay. Mm. Um, okay. So Lake Pupo. Everything that I think you mentioned uh, that contributed the multiple facets that contributed to its its sudden drying up all appeared to be man made. Am I right? I mean, that does you know where? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, there, there's. There, there, there are, as I said, there are natural. There have been natural fluctuations in the water level over the over the years, and some people suggested this, this may not be permanent. Hopefully, hopefully not. But it's undeniable that man-made, you know, human factors had a had a huge um, and almost certainly decisive impact on on this particular event. Right, um, and it's quite stark. Well, you mentioned about forest fires in the Amazon. Now, a lot of us uh, just typically think of uh, the Amazon rainforest. We know it's big. We hopefully know it's really important for the earth to be able to breathe, literally breathe in and out. You can elaborate on that. And we may know it's been under threat, but we tend to associate it with Brazil. Uh, yeah, what percentage of Bolivia does the Amazon occupy and how are any problems that they're having with the rainforest, they're different from neighboring countries that also include parts of the Amazon. 
Yeah, well, Bolivia is often thought of as an Andean country, and it has a it does have a very distinct Andean culture or cultures rather. But around a third of the country lies within the Amazon basin. Wow, that's um, a lot. And yeah. it, it's, it's, a huge, it's a huge area. It's a fascinating place to explore. Now, obviously, this is a lot smaller than, than in neighbouring Brazil, but the Bolivian Amazon is dealing with many of, you know, almost exactly the same issues as, as its, as its neighbours. Uh, but it's also an incredible place to, to travel through. And it is somewhere that with your tourism as a traveller, you can have a positive impact because tourism brings uh, very much needed uh, employment, money, investment into communities, particularly indigenous communities um, who otherwise don't don't have, you know, have very little support from the authorities, um, which obviously leaves them and the, the wider environment vulnerable to things like deforestation, things like uh, agriculture, cattle ranching, illegal gold mining, which is a huge issue, and of course, poaching. So you can really have a, this is somewhere you can really have a positive impact with your travel. And you can also have an incredible experience because one of the national parks there, uh, Park National Medidi, is the most biodiverse protected area on earth. It has around 8,000 different species. 8,000. Anacondas, pink dolphins, uh, all manner of birds, uh, piranhas, uh, tapirs. It's an incredible place to experience. So, um, yeah. Did I hear you say? Did I hear you say on another show that it's got ten percent of of the world's something? Was it birds? Bird life, yeah. So, so roughly ten percent of the the, the 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 world's bird species. And the, the, the wonderful thing is that they're all they're, they're regularly discovering new new species, many of which were previously unknown to science. Although, of course, often very well known to the indigenous communities that mm. have lived in these these areas for uh, for millennia. But uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's weird and wonderful creatures. I mean, I, I always I always love the pink river dolphins that you you have there. They're called bufeos uh in in um uh bolivia locally and they're very associated with um myths and legends um they're considered shapeshifters for example and uh yeah one of my most memorable experiences was swimming in one of these uh reed fringed lagoons in the amazon and having uh, these pink dolphins uh swim around me and occasionally splash me in, in a way that felt deliberately playful <laughs> And this is the point where I can't deny that I made an edit in the interview because it would be too clumsy to do otherwise. But you can treat it also as the halfway break and uh, press pause for a moment if you need to hit the bathroom. If you're driving, you know, maybe pull over before you do that. But you might have a bottle handy. Who knows? I'm getting off subject. Let's get back to the subject. When we talk about climate, I I think, you know, climate can shift into the word geography and I want you to talk about the beauty of a place like this first, the natural beauty, because one thing I have to be honest, your book does not have is photographs. And I, you know, maybe budgetary issue with your publisher on some of your website articles where you've written for other magazines that have those budgets because, hey, it's it love, it's the web. You can see this beauty, both urban and natural. So can you just take a minute to describe, you know, you mentioned the solar, um, the salt flats. Not everybody even knows about the salt flats, uh, the Andes, uh, the, you know, the rainforest. I mean, I mean, how does it strike you when you're traveling through that country? 
well, it was it was the stunning landscapes that initially drew me drew me into Bolivia when I first visited way back way back when as a as a backpacker without knowing much about the country, and I was just stunned by what I saw and also the diversity of what I saw. So, if you you know roughly speaking, if you look at the west of the country, that's the Andes. So, it's, it's some of the highest mountains on Earth. You have high altitude lakes like Lake Titicaca for example, and you have the Salar de Ayuni, the Ayuni salt flats, which are the world's biggest salt flats. To put that in context, context it's roughly the size of Jamaica. Um, it's a high altitude. It's blindingly white. It's surrounded by uh, mountains and smoldering volcanoes. It, it feels like it's on like you're on another planet. It's a really um, it's an incredible, incredible environment. And some of the national parks near there are filled with these uh, again, high altitude lakes that are filled with flamingos. Some of them are stained green or red by the minerals there. There are high mountain passes and so on. But also in the Andes, you have two of the highest cities on Earth uh, in El Alto and Potosi. And these are riots of kind of human life. You know, in, in El Alto, which has a very strong indigenous Aymara culture, you have these incredible, incredible architectural movement that's developed in uh, in recent years um, and it's incredibly colorful and it's mirrored glass and it's technicolor and it's trippy and it's incredibly distinct to this part of Bolivia so and then but in within a few hours you can be in Lake Titicaca on the shores in the town of Copacabana which gave its name to the more famous neighborhood in Brazil and uh, it, you, you're in what looks like an inland lake um, and a place that, uh, according to the to the Incas, gave birth to the sun and the moon. Shift over to the um, uh, Amazon, of course, and it's completely different. It's part of it is very is the is the Amazon of popular imagination. So dense rainforests veined with rivers and and waterways, incredibly biodiverse in terms of wildlife. Also, um, uh, indigenous communities there. Also, some absolutely fascinating millennia old. Um, ruins, uh, these you know, thousands and thousands of earthworks that, are, that we're really only just developing an understanding of now. Yeah, I've read and I've, I want you to describe those earthworks in a moment because I still can't get my head around them, but I feel you haven't finished taking us across Bolivia here yet. Well, I, I, will, I will finish off, and this is really a whirlwind tour, I will finish off in the, in the east towards the, um, the uh, Brazilian border and now it's much more of a tropical landscape. It's it's much flatter. This is cattle country. Um, you have big cities like Santa Cruz, which is the country's industrial um, driver. Uh, great food, great nightlife, very, very different vibe and feel and culture and language often to uh, to La Paz. And then south of there, you have the, the, the Chaco, which, you know, a, a, a wilderness area that's shared with... Um, shared with uh paraguay so it's it's it's, in, it's incredibly it's incredibly diverse and the diversity of this landscape is is obviously reflected into the into the cultures both present day and historic and uh one of the things i explore in my book and i've explored in my journalism subsequently are the uh the ancient uh societies and cultures of the amazon of which relatively little is known about today the study is 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 really um in its in its infancy but in a part of the bolivian amazon called the llanos de moxos um which is they have rainforest but it's also um savannah that floods seasonally 
And in this area, there are around 20,000 man-made earthworks. Um, so these are raised fields, causeways, um, uh, raised living spaces, uh, reservoirs, uh, areas to hunt, and so on. Um, and it's a huge network. Now, most of them have been consumed by the, uh, by the jungle over the years, so it's very difficult to see. But if you fly over um, and you look down, you'll often see like suspiciously straight, straight-sided um, uh, shapes and mm -hmm. zigzags and meandering circles and so on. And uh, this was, yeah, as, as I say, the remnants of a fascinating ancient culture that really uh, built these um, built these earthworks in an area where there's no stone, so there's no equivalent to you know you can't just build something like Machu Picchu there because you just don't have the the materials. There are no domesticated animals there right. either. As I say, it's seasonally flooded and it floods a lot, so you have to be very very adaptable in a very challenging environment. Nevertheless, this you know these ancient cultures, uh, the cultures of the Anos de Moxos. Um, helped to tame and shape that environment. They even built pyramids just last year. Um, there was laser scanning studies of this area, and they discovered the uh, the remnants of a pyramid, uh, which I believe is the first that's been discovered in this in the in this part of the Amazon. And it's really shaped, reshaped, and changed the the way that we view the Amazon. In that uh, many people see it that before 1492 and the arrival of uh, Europeans in the Americas. Uh, the Amazon is painted as a pristine, untouched landscape. Actually, it had many, many more people, uh, many more complex um, settlements and societies and cultures, um, indigenous cultures, than 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 we than we than we thought. And yeah. gradually, our understanding of this is is um, is is developing, and it's a really exciting time. It it sounds like it is uh, for archaeologists, for anthropologists. When you, you mention the word indigenous a, a lot here, and, uh, and and that notion that uh, we don't know too much about what was going on with these communities uh, in the past, civilizations in the past, suggests that that's probably because we, <clears throat> I'll hold my hand up as a European, wiped them out um, to a large extent. Otherwise, I would like to believe that oral history alone would preserve a lot of explanations for everything from pyramids to, to earth mounds. So what's the indigenous situation like in Bolivia? And does that give us hope? Again, if I'm keeping this sort of overall sense of, you know, is travel good? Uh, can we travel for good? And you know, how, uh, how does all of this affect the climate? How are we going to work our way out of the climate crisis? Where does the indigenous population in a country like Bolivia fit into this story? Uh, well, Bolivia has a very strong indigenous heritage and many, many cultures as well, particularly in the Andean side, the Aymara and the Quechua speaking communities. But it's it's a very, very rich patchwork. And Bolivia had the first indigenous uh, leader or, or president um, in 500 years in, in Evo Morales, who was elected um, in, the, in, the, in the 2000s. And if you just travel in the country, you will immediately uh, see and experience and hear these different different cultures. If you're in La Paz, for example, you will hear Aymara spoken on the streets, which is obviously very, very different to uh, to, to Spanish. And, you know, I'm, I'm very aware that a lot of the things that we've talked about are, you know, it, 
they're difficult issues. They're not always positive issues talking about, about the, the climate. But definitely one thing that uh, all my many years exploring Bolivia and writing this book have really given me is a sense of hope. And a lot of that hope is rooted in the indigenous cultures. So the, the ancient cultures of the Llanos de Moxos, one of the most challenging environments on Earth, that shows us that you know humans are incredibly resilient and you can adapt and you can find inventive ways of living in part national medivi which is in the other part of the bolivian amazon which is uh, as as mentioned one of the most biodiverse protected areas on earth um there's really really positive um indigenous run uh, lodges eco lodges and also tour tour companies that you can visit that you can spend money directly that supports these communities and at the same time helps to protect this incredibly important um, landscape. And then one final example I'll give you, uh, very different to this, is, is El Alto, which is the highest city on Earth. It's next to La Paz. And that's a place that was largely founded um, by um, internal migrants, uh, indigenous migrants within, within Bolivia, who have to leave, leave other parts of Western Bolivia because of economic crises, but also because of um, uh, you know climatic change that had you know terrible impact on agriculture, and they flocked to La Paz, you know the de facto capital of of, of Bolivia, um, and then they settled on the rim of the canyon which surrounds it. And over the last 30, 40 years, they developed you know a dynamic, thriving, incredibly inventive city. And uh, if anyone has the chance to visit Bolivia, I would thoroughly recommend going to this place because it's um, from, from very little for people escaping poverty. They've built a place that's a dynamic, you know, center for entrepreneurialism. There's all kinds of businesses going on there. Some not always legal, I should say, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, it, 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 it's a dynamic hub. More than a million people live there now. And one of the most evident things there is the uh, indigenous um, uh, architectural style that has developed these incredible buildings, um, which blend lots of different usage and which you really won't find anywhere else on, on Earth. What, are they called chopolets? Well, is it something close to that? It's close to that. They're called choles. Yeah, yeah. I, I read about those, and I, I, if I'm right, El Alto, in the space of just decades, outgrew La Paz in terms of population. That yeah, would suggest, right. to, yeah. I mean, that's amazing. And that talks about urban growth, and it, it, one does tend to think of urban growth as being a problem. Uh, you know, more and more of us on the on the planet are living in big cities, and big cities can't cope. This sounds like El Alto is a thriving cosmopolitan city in its own right, which has been created out of indigenous culture. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Now, I don't want to sugarcoat this, and and to pretend that absolutely everything is rosy, that is a perfect situation there. It very much isn't, you know, as everywhere in the world, there's all, there's always issues, but there's a lot of positive things going in there. And the, the knock on effect it's had as a, as a positive example of, um, and, you know, indigenous cultures that have often been repressed over the years, uh, speaking particularly about the Aymara culture in this context. Um, and it shows, again, like the ancient sites in the Llanos de Moxos, that you know, hum humans are endlessly adaptable and resourceful. And there are things we can do. It's, it's easy to feel helpless you know, in, in the face of some, an issue like the climate crisis. But you know, there's lots of issues facing the world at the moment. But actually, these 
community-based, often indigenous-based, um, you know, organically grown um, developments, projects, cities, societies show that actually, you know, working together, we can find solutions to these problems. But 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 we have to recognize them and we have to act. I had not realized till I read your book how much of the world's wealth came out of Bolivia. I genuinely hadn't. I, I, I would like to think I'm quite well read. It starts with silver. It continues with tin. I believe rubber is in there as well. And it comes right up to date with lithium. Um, some of the stories are horrific. The abuse, the slavery, the massacres of, of, of workers. Uh, What's our takeaway here? Um, because it's depressing for to read about. It's really depressing to read about. There's no easy way to paint that city of Potosi. Um, there's no easy way to paint it. The, the, the city that eats its people, whatever it was, the city that eats its men. Um, it's, yeah. Can you, can you talk a little about it and give us some hope on terms of extracting stuff out of the planet? Yeah, so so Potosi is um, is uh, now is is not necessarily a familiar word around the around the world, but it was once synonymous with great wealth. So it's one of the highest cities on earth, and uh, it's loomed over by this mountain called Cerro Rico, Rich Hill, and that's the source of the richest silver mine in history. Uh, and this silver mine had a seismic impact on. Um, you know, it, it essentially kicked off globalization. It was traded across the world. It had huge impacts in Europe and across Asia. And it had a huge, huge cost in terms of indigenous people, in terms of enslaved Africans as well. Um, it often seems that Bolivia, like many countries, is both blessed and cursed with natural resources. As you say, it had huge, huge tin mines as well. Um, and it produced uh, people like Simon Patino, who in the early 20th century was one of the richest men in the world, the Rockefeller of the Andes, as they called him, uh, but also huge rubber um, reserves in, in, the, in the Amazon. And again, there's huge lots of abuses with that. And scrolling forward to the present day, lithium, which is making our conversation via laptops, via the internet possible, because it's essential component of uh, batteries, including in electric vehicles. Uh, some of the biggest reserves of that in the world lie beneath the Saladio Uni, but below the salt flats. Um, and at the moment, um, you know, Bolivia is wrestling with how to extract that or how to extract it in huge, in huge amounts. Uh, without uh, devastating this very valuable and uh, delicate ecosystem, um, you know, you can you, you it, to, can well, it, can... We, you know, I, I would, I would, I would hope that it's extracted, it's extracted with causing as little damage as possible. If you know, if if uh, if you don't mind me hedging my answer a little bit, I think it's very difficult. It, it, it's too valuable to lie below the surface. Um, untouched, unfortunately, and Bolivia is a country that, uh, that needs the money, to be quite frank. Um, there is greater awareness now of the importance of, um, or there's greater political determination, I should say, that the benefits, the financial benefits of this should actually go a bit more to the Bolivian people, certainly the Bolivian state, than, uh, than was with the case with silver, which was largely extracted by the um, Spanish crown and by you know, these, um, you know, the uh, oligarchs of their day who dominated um, rubber and tin. Um, the thing is, these issues are being discussed. There's, you know, it's a very potent political issue at the moment, lithium in Bolivia. 
Um, there's lots of protests on the streets. There are also efforts to develop, um, you know, like uh, battery factories, uh, lithium battery factories in Bolivia. Bolivia has produced prototypes of its own electric car. You know, it's we 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 will wait and see to see how impactful it is and how 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 damaging it is. Well, but, one, um, one, at least one... there's more awareness of some of the issues involved. Switching here as a final subject matter, um, I want to go to Bolivia and I will get to Bolivia, but I, I'm going this summer to somewhere that's easier uh, to, to, to get to, get around. And that's, that, that's partly because my partner hasn't done much travel like this. And as you mentioned, Bolivia, much of it is very high altitude. That comes with certain risks. And we're going to Costa Rica, which is uh, not South America, but Central America, but it's not a million miles away. And it's somewhere that you've been recently to research and write about, and I'm sure not for the first time. And it feels like almost like an opposite of Bolivia in yet in the same geographical area in that it's famously tourist friendly and publicly has a very good contemporary record for environmentalism. Um, is that, are we, are we making a smart choice? in terms of going to costa rica and what can we you know what can one see there in a much smaller country and does will it give me more or less hope than bolivia would do once i, I get there i i i, th I think it will give you i think it will give you hope i mean i'm lucky to have uh, been visiting costa rica <clears throat> on and off for about the last 12 years or so and um there's lots of good positive stories here almost 100 percent of its electricity is produced from renewable sources um, around a third of the country is um, is protected, um, and you know Costa Rica is a small country, but it's incredibly biodiverse, disproportionately biodiverse, um, and that really you know strikes you wherever you go. Um, even in the cities, you'll see wonderful birds. It's a really good um, gateway to Latin America, I would say. <coughs> it's um, it's small, so it's small size. It's very geared towards um tourism it's also one of the birthplaces of um ecotourism and there's excellent ways places to um stay where you can minimize your your impact while you're while you're there um and really the wildlife and particularly the bird life is is unparalleled cloud forests and rainforests uh mountains and volcanoes pacific and uh, uh and caribbean coastlines huge mangrove uh, forests as well some really interesting cities and uh, and towns too um it is somewhere that it, it you know it uplifts the spirits visiting there definitely and even if you're even vaguely interested in wildlife um you'll go away uh you know infused by it it really does kind of burst out everywhere um and yeah not 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 just the wildlife but also the plant life orchids particularly um so yeah so i was lucky to get back there earlier this year to to write a travel feature um it was my first time back there since before the pandemic and again not to sugarcoat everything there's obviously some issues in 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 costa rica as you know any any conversation that you have with a local person will tell you it's not completely escaped the uh you know the challenges of the uh the, the modern world that uh, that everyone faces um but there's lots of really positive things going on there including from a um from a travel perspective and um yeah particularly if you're short on time if you haven't traveled in south america or latin america before and you want a you know relatively easy um you know first experience of it 
um yeah i really i really highly recommend uh costa rica going on youtube to try and get some ideas and maybe get a sense of what it looks like which is not was not such a thing eight years ago when i was preparing for our around the world trip i don't remember us doing much of that I got a little depressed because every video blog shows the same three or four places. It's a couple, whether they're young or old or a single girl or a single guy. And they're like, go to Arenal, uh, go to this cloud forest, go to was it Manuel Antonio Beach. And there have to be alternatives to that. So bringing us back around to the questions of travel versus tourism and your job as a travel writer, how does one in a small tourist friendly country like costa rica get off the beaten map to enjoy an experience that won't just have you bumping up against aussies who've decided to open a, a distillery or something like i believe they did down in tierra del fuego yeah well it, it, it's um first off you're gonna meet you're gonna meet other two tourists and travelers while you're while you're while you're there but you can definitely avoid some of the bigger crowds um the cloud forests, the Monteverde cloud forests, lots of people will go to them. Um, you won't have them to yourself, but they're also absolutely incredible and they should definitely be on your radar. One of the ways to avoid um, being overcrowded with people there is to go at less busy times of the year. This is something that I advise, you know, for a cross travel because it also helps to avoid over tourism. Um, there's also, I mean, I'm saying to the, you that this in a public forum, so it may not, uh, the, the, the advice may not hold for too much longer, but the Santa Elena Cloud mm -hmm. Forest Reserve tends to be quite a lot quieter than the main Monteverde, Monteverde Cloud Forest Reserve. So that will be one way to do it. And there's lots of other reserves um, in that area that are better, a little well, a little less well known. And thus you can help to, you know, you, to avoid the, um, avoid the crowds having said that when i was there the main one was you know i was walking along the trails getting soaking wet because the cloud forests are very wet needless to say um and i had them i had them to myself the other areas i really i really recommend are the zona sur the far south um of costa rica which are a little bit less developed um still relatively easy to get to incredibly you know wonderful um rainforest to explore very very biodiverse and i love the caribbean coastline mm. so the for, for me the beaches are the most beautiful there um there are tourists but you can get off the the, the beaten track a bit the food is great uh, it's very rich indigenous cultures as well um so there are ways to avoid um some of some of some of the crowds if you go to manuel antonio which is on the pacific coast that's very very touristy if you go to the arenal volcano which is spectacular you'll find lots and lots of visitors there but Costa Rica's got a load of volcanoes and it's got it a does, load of beach resorts. It? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does. There's uh, a, a, a penultimate question, but the last about Costa Rica, but it applies to a lot of countries we go to. To get off the beaten path, it, uh, does that mean renting your own vehicle to literally drive off the beaten path? Or does it in fact mean digging further into public transport and doing less tourist shuttles and, and jumping on a bus with the locals? Yeah, look, obviously, if you have your own vehicle, you know, your own car, that's that that's easy, that, that easily allows you to get off the, the beaten track. But the public transport system is very good in in Costa Rica. And if you've got a bit of time, I heartily recommend just getting on the public buses like local people do, which go to most places in the in the country. Um, you'll save a lot of money. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer, but 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 not always. 
um, and you can you can you can pretty much get everywhere you want. And Costa Rica is, is quite a small country, so it does have internal flights. But um, rather than rather than doing that, I would say just pick a few places, you know, may, maybe one or two fewer places to visit on your itinerary and stick to those and have a richer experience in those places rather than trying to fit everything in because you won't be able to fit everything in on, no. uh, on the same trip. For those of us who would like to get off the beaten path somewhat and uh, find somewhere interesting in the world, somewhere rarely visited but where we can feel safe and will provide a unique experience based on your own travels where do you recommend well a region that i absolutely love is patagonia so south of bolivia split between argentina and chile now both of these areas do get do, do get tourists but it's a huge huge area particularly the um the argentine side and it's very very you know if you're seeking endless horizons lots of space small crowds or no crowds rather um you know a sense of freedom even this is a great place to um to to travel through it's very safe uh it's quite long distances but the traveling is part of the part of the attraction and it also has absolutely stunning stunning scenery so steppe lands uh mountains uh fjords glaciers um very very remote uh towns vast estancias which are sheep ranches or cattle ranches um and uh yeah there's it's it's a place if you have a sense of, sense of adventure and you want to get out and if you're feeling claustrophobic in your cities as i sometimes do in london um yeah that's the place to go to great that was actually a very easy comfortable answer that's a very approachable place uh all around and I'm sure I can act on that. Certainly living in, in uh, the United States, it's much more of a straight flight down. So thank you for all of that. Thank you for everything there. To, I know you're as an ex-newspaper man, you love a good pun. I would say you are a very, very deep mine of uh, travel knowledge, uh, given that we were talking about some of that. Uh, maybe we'll have you back again even further down the line, but I appreciate we, we could talk about travel from the climate perspective. And uh you know, thanks again for taking part. Thanks for bringing Bolivia, uh, you know, a bit bit further, a bit more into some of our uh, attention spans, and all these great articles that you write for the other uh, various online and print magazines that address the climate issues. It's a pleasure talking with you, Shafik. Oh well, it's I been think. an absolute pleasure talking to you too, Tony. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, as you say, I'm sure we could talk for hours and hours and days and days, but uh, yeah, we should wrap it up. I'm sure. Great. All right. Lovely. Take care of yourself. Bye bye. Cheers. Bye. So yeah, thanks once again, Shafiq. Feel like I've gotten to know you quite well over the course of uh, two interviews in space of about two or three months. Excellent conversation there, advice, recommendations. I will provide links in the show notes to Shafiq's website where you can find him and also to the two articles we talked about up front at the beginning of the episode about Canvey Wick and the temperate rainforests of Wales. I'll also supply links to a couple of articles I looked up this morning. I just thought it might be good research to see what's been written in the national press here in the States about Bolivia and Costa Rica of late. I used the New York Times, which I have a subscription for. I was kind of surprised about the dearth of articles, but one that was of great interest and relevant to the conversation we just had, and very recent, published July 2nd, was about American car companies that have pledged to produce um, electric cars. And 
actually essentially trying to set up their own mines in various countries to mine lithium, actually bypassing suppliers because there's not enough supply. They don't trust China and uh, looking to set up their own mines, which, uh, you know, the idea of the company mine comes right back around. And that's uh, something that Bolivia in particular has had a long history of. And interestingly, General Motors was uh, steering away from Bolivia because of its historic political instability. The other article was one of the few uh, that mentioned Costa Rica other than uh, the success of its football team in the last World Cup. And that was uh, about a Canadian mining company that is test driving, if that is the right term, and a ship that is dredging the uh, ocean floors 1,100 miles off the Mexican coast uh, to uh, dredge up, uh, to actually suck up rocks in the hope of getting uh, precious uh, minerals and elements such as cobalt and manganese that are also needed for a lot of modern devices and understandably there's been opposition opposition to that from environmental groups and indeed entire nations including Costa Rica. I think both those stories are just a reminder that even if we, we are trying to make the planet more um, renewable and get off fossil fuels all of it comes at a cost there is a price to pay for everything and you me Shafiq may not be able to make the difference uh, individually but collectively by having these discussions we can certainly contribute to the solutions All right. I want to thank everybody who's uh, all of you for listening this far. I do want to invite you again. I normally say, uh, hey, if you like the show, subscribe, like, rate, review. You are welcome to do all of those things. But what I'd really like, and again, invite you to do tonyfletcher.substack.com. You'll get a free weekly article that I hope will be of interest to you, given that I am a writer and I've written a lot about travel and these issues. And you'll also get lots of news about this podcast, about my other podcasts, about my other writings that get published, broadcasts, uh, events, and so on and so forth. No cost whatsoever to sign up at this point. And uh, I think that's it. The show will be back a month from now. Uh, That may be just before or just after I get back from my trip to Costa Rica. And so you may get yet another travel episode uh, hot on the heels of this one. You may not. Who knows? We'll see you in a month. Take care out there. Be well. Be well.